the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour two, it is a delight to bring back this uh, just this gift to uh, our medical and intellectual and um, public policy community. We are delighted he uh, is based here in Phoenix. He is uh, our good friend, Dr. Zudi Jasser. He is, of course, the director of the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care in his medical practice. Uh, in his other uh, time, he uh, founded and is the president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, author of uh, a great book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, An American Muslim Patriot's Fight to Save His Faith. Whenever there's a crisis, you can count on Dr. Jasser. Uh, I remember right after 9-11, I was doing national radio at the time. Dr. Jasser was uh, our go-to for helping understand the goings-on when places like NPR were interviewing uh, Anwar al-Awlaki to understand what was going on. Um, Dr. Jasser was right, and uh, Alaki, of course, was wrong. That's a name I bet you haven't thought of in a while, Zudi, huh? And thankfully he is... Uh no longer now, amongst with, us, uh, yeah. And, and he wasn't, you know, that was when we had, uh, our presidents weren't shooting missiles at balloons, but shooting <laughs> missiles at terrorists right. like Olaki, which was a good thing. That's right. <laughs> Do you remember that? NPR, now NPR, he really was a go-to for them on helping us understand uh, the uh, the Muslim faith. And, of course, he was the cleric who was, uh, as you well know, I don't need to tell you, but I might remind the audience, who was the uh, was uh, Nidal Hassan, uh, the 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 Fort the Fort Hood uh, assassins uh, uh, cleric, right? I mean, and ended up. Oh, absolutely. This is so th- this was who, NPR's I mean, go-to. This was NPR's go-to. God knows. Yeah, because go ahead. his his uh, his bona fides supposedly were that he was not only uh, educated in America, yeah, uh, but uh, you know ran a mosque in Northern Virginia, which is yeah. how NPR thought he was great. Yeah. And uh, I talk about similar imams in my book uh, that you mentioned, The yeah. Battle for the Soul of Islam, where we were trying to find an imam for Bethesda Naval Hospital, and I quickly told them that the imam they wanted to hire was uh, was pretty radical, and he was the guy that followed Olaki at that mosque. That makes sense, because uh, didn't—do uh, I have—I might have this wrong. Where was Hassan—was he Bethesda? Wasn't Hassan from Bethesda, too, Nadal Hassan? Didn't he practice there, or am I— or, Yep, or, or, he was at Uniform Services yeah, right. uh, School, um, Army guy. I, you know, that's a—all three branches were at that, right, that's, at that medical that's school, was, yeah. and then he ended up in Texas. Yeah. yeah, that's right. He was a psychiatrist, and I remember the Department of Homeland Security said in their after— uh, uh, in, in their in their in their report on what took place at Fort Hood, they said uh, that uh, places like Fort Hood needed uh, more mental health services. And I thought the guy was a psychiatrist. Please. And his qualifications to go to Fort Hood was he was going around Walter Reed giving soldiers a, a card that said Dr. Hassan, soldier of Allah. Remember that, that? That didn't raise any red flags at the time. Didn't he also give lectures from an al-Qaeda-ish perspective on what Islam should stand for and people were afraid to speak up? I remember some British yeah. papers reported that. No American papers did. That was, my that was the fertile soil of the uh, woke movement where yeah. even in our military— 
uh, my colleagues, uh, I wasn't there at the time, but many of them were my colleagues because uh, I ended up there a couple years later, um, were afraid to even mention that a guy who should have been giving grand rounds to uh, Walter Reed on psychiatric illness all of a sudden started talking about American intervention yeah. and jihad and all this other stuff. Yeah, it gave lie to the if you see something, say something notion that the administration was touting at the time. People were afraid to say something because they knew they'd be fired because they looked like they were racist, right? Wasn't that the thought? Exactly. And now, and then you wonder how we got where we are yeah, today. And that you was wonder. back in the yeah. 90s. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It goes <laughs> far back back that far. Speaking of woke, you have been long time, I think, you correct me if I'm wrong, you have been long time friends with uh, Asra Nomani. A lot of people know her from her work on challenging the curriculum in uh, the school curricula in Virginia and kind of exposing the uh, ethnic nonsense and racial and sexual and gender nonsense in the curricula in Virginia that led to Glenn Youngkin's election there. But she's got a resume that goes back somewhat farther and much farther than that. And she has a book that came out this year, actually, Woke Army, the Red Green Alliance that is Destroying America's Freedom. And she's making a little bit of news these days on that front, too. Did you want to say something about that? Yeah, I can't tell you how important this book is. It uh, basically talks about the topic that you and I have discussed many times, is this Red-Green Alliance. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how, I mean, as you mentioned, Esther and I have been working together since uh, directly since 2011 when Peter King had the first hearings on Muslim radicalization, and she and I were, were on the uh, panel uh, testifying about what radicalizes Muslims uh, across the country. She actually was a friend of Danny Pearl, and uh, he vanished in Pakistan when she had been uh, uh, close to him, and she's now been with the Danny Pearl Foundation for some time also. Yeah, and she told was, Danny uh, Pearl's right story. That's right. That's right. She, yep. that, and for those that don't remember Daniel Pearl, he was one of the first casualties post-9-11, wasn't he? Uh, threatened. Uh, he was beheaded. Uh, it, it was bragged by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that he beheaded him. But that's who Daniel Pearl was from the Wall Street Journal, right? Yep, and and she was there, did uh, a lot of the initial reporting, uh, uh, talked to yeah. the Pearl family, right. and uh, became very close to them and uh, really confronted anti-Semitism yeah. uh, head-on before uh, any of us were even, uh, you know, doing any of the work that we're doing now. And, you know, and, and sort of fast-forward, uh, she continued that uh, rugged journalism, uh, uh, which she did with the Wall Street Journal and then with the Post, and now what she did, what, there was a website called Loon Watch, uh, loonwatch.com that was had millions of uh, hits from across the world that basically tried to demonize and defame any of us that uh, exposed jihad. And uh, when our Muslim reform movement got on the map in 2015, that included about 10 of us that were very active in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. That website was part of the main tools used to defame and create fiction about us. It was all run by folks that were using pseudonyms. Um, that uh, she lays out in an article uh, a few days ago on unheard.com, uh-huh. where she talks about the acceptable face of radical Islam. And these seven or eight authors uh, were basically raising money through uh, uh, various uh, Indiegogo websites. And what she did was she filed a uh, defamation lawsuit in 2018 against them. And through the lawsuit, uh, they were able to then expose, and the websites had to, and this is a note to all to all your listeners, is that people think they can do things anonymously on the web. If you attack somebody else on the Internet and then they file a lawsuit, um, whether it's GoDaddy, Facebook, whatever it is, they have to, by law, reveal who it is that actually is paying for that site and who's dealing with it. So she immediately 
within uh, three, four months of the lawsuit being filed, got all the receipts, and it turned out to be the head of care in Chicago, the head of the Council on American Islamic Relations in Washington, and they were systematically, their directors were using pseudonyms to basically create fiction about many of us in the Muslim community uh, against uh, many uh, um, many in the Jewish community, uh, any of the pro-Israel um, uh, thought leaders uh, against uh, Robert Spencer and so many others, uh, basically calling us all Islamophobes because we had the temerity to disagree with the Islamist movement. And I think the point learned here is that the reason she calls this the woke army, the far left was using Loon Watch mm. to basically attack conservative. I mean, Incredible. that site not only attacked Muslims, it attacked Republicans, it attacked candidates, and and it went off the map. And the last post you'll see at LoonWatch.com was in 2018, which coincidentally, <laughs> and not coincidentally, was the, the month that she filed the defamation lawsuit against them, and they had to reveal who was in it. And now her book, after a few years of work, paused by COVID, uh, has now come out to reveal exactly who these people are. And you should follow her on Twitter because... You know, it, they're all they're they're just fuming that this is being exposed right now. Oh, I'm glad it is. And so, as 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 it turns out, this defamation campaign against people like yourself, people like Asra, um, this defamation campaign, its vector was places like the Council for American Islamic Relations, CARE. Yep, and that's you know they this is their modus operandi. This they is this is Ilan Omar's best or- friend. Yeah, this is who who gives Ilan Omar her her, her Woman of the Year awards, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, they claim to be a civil rights organization, but they are a bullying and destructive organization that wraps itself around anything anti-American, anything anti-Israel, and will use it and and use blasphemy-type laws to suppress free speech, to suppress uh, folks that uh, show diversity in our community. They don't want anything to do with actual diversity. They're trying to use Middle Eastern, Saudi, Iranian laws uh, uh, of Sharia and then use our own um, freedoms against us here in the U.S., and that's what the woke army is all about. Yeah, the, thank you for putting in a word on that. I have to take a break. You can stay with us a little bit. Dr. Zudi Jasser is our guest, uh, head of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, author of A Battle for the Soul of Islam, uh, An American Muslim Patriot's Fight to Save His Faith. Bill Bennett uh, profiles him in his Book of Man. Uh, as well. Well Well-deserved. We're going to talk just a little bit more about that red-green access uh, when we come back. And then I want to talk a little bit about COVID. We brought Zudi in not only in the crisis of um, after 9-11 here in Phoenix. He was was our go-to for uh, COVID, you may remember, in the early days of 2020. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dr. Zudi Jasser is our guest. I wanted to talk to him about some of the uh, uh, some of our uh, learning from the COVID experience. Uh, but before we do, I want to keep uh, keep on this theme that we were uh, speaking about in his capacity as the head of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Uh, Zudi, you you have spoken, and we were talking in the previous segment about this red green access or red green alliance. Uh, it's a thesis I have been fascinated with. I, I think I. I I may have first been introduced to it, and I don't think it was under that phraseology, but early on, a book that I liked, I, maybe maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe you don't know it, by Paul Berman called Terrorism and Liberalism, which went through the history 
of European ideological thinking, European ideologies like um, like uh, fa- uh, like fascism and Marxism, that had helped propel so much of the 20th century's Islamist or notions of Islamism or political Islam, and effectively, if I'm not jumbling this up, that's kind of what we're talking about in the red green axis, isn't it? Absolutely, and yes, I, I love Paul's book. Uh, Learned a lot from it uh, many years ago, and and uh, you know, the, and as you mentioned, you know, Paul. One of the 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 things that uh, he had noted was the grandson of uh, the the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Tarek Ramadan, who became the darling of Europe until a few years ago. He was found to be also a serial rapist. Uh, uh-huh. But uh, uh, set that uh, uh, horror aside. Uh, the bottom line is, is there was a, a piece that the Social Socialist Workers Party of Germany and of Europe uh, wrote, and they said the 40 reasons why the left should stay away from Tariq Ramadan. And Paul Berman at the time said, you know, this is sort of a sign that the the red-green, you know, what we call now the red-green axis will fall apart, is mm-hmm. because ultimately, while they initially have the same enemies, which is the left, which is the left hating the West, hating freedom, hating Israel, you know, that ultimately can only get them so far. And as we see in the Middle East, with the Nasser's of the world that were socialist uh, uh, and, you know, authoritarians, they ultimately then also slaughtered Islamists when they got into power. So, you know, that marriage is one of convenience. As people talk now about the marriage of Russia and China, etc., you know, a lot of these uh, communist and authoritarian groups will join whoever they want to find a common enemy, but then they'll break apart uh, at the end of the day. And I think the woke movement if you will, is right now united in not only its hate for America, but its uh, exploitation of victimization and the uh, use of identity movements. You see now they're hijacking the profession of medicine, right. where where purely supposedly scientific uh, uh, professions that are supposed to be about, uh, uh, you know, debate and inquiry and, and uh, are rewarding people that question authority now we're turning into lockstep authoritarian movements where our, our smartest and brightest are actually being punished for questioning authority and being punished for actually being scientists. And that's what the woke movement's all about. And, and, and ultimately, it's also going to backfire, just as a lot of the stuff the left does. The red and the uh, green, the red and the green, the red representing, of course, uh, c- uh, traditional Marxism and the green representing what we what, what, what's the phrase of art that you like? I call it everything from political Islam to Islamo fascism. What, what, what do you like to call it? What's your preferred term? It's, it's yeah, it's Islamism, but it's actually most uh, uh, correctly Islamo nationalism okay. because the green okay. flags of, uh, you know, sort of where they mix national identity and political movements okay. with the religion of Islam. So theocracy, but an Islamo-nationalism. Okay, great. Thank you. As long as you brought us to that point, um, let's let's talk about uh, wokeism in medicine. You and I were both taken by this op-ed in the Washington Post. I think it was published yesterday by, by an anesthesiologist in California. California law now mandates something like, what was it, 50 hours every couple of years in DEI training? Because as the law states, implicit bias, meaning the attitudes of internalized stereotypes that affect our perceptions, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner, exist. I I don't know how you can have something uh, so provably, um, so 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 provably uh, uh, intangible like an something that's called implicit bias written into state law as we recognize that it exists. It's it's almost like 
any it's 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 kind of a triumph of the will. Anyone who wants to say anything about anything, if you get a majority, you can just say it exists, even if you don't see it. It's an emperor without clothes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean this this DEI Kool Aid that's being spread across the country is is so so much of a blatant power grab that the only way they they are able to make it successful is by making it into some type of massive tidal wave that nobody can even question. Right. That somehow, but you can't see it either. It, right. You can't question it, but you can't see it. Right. Exactly. And and I mean to say that now, as this anesthesiologist Marilyn Singleton points out. The entire continuing medical education that they need for their licensing has been tied to education. And, and she's a black physician right. who said, you know, she wants nothing more than for uh, patients from the black community and others to be treated completely equally. Right. But this is going to do exact – their programming is actually going to end up doing the opposite because if you feel that certain people need to uh, uh, be educated in, in equality – you know, the presumption that all white people are racist is yeah. not going to get you there. That's right. It's not, you know, that's not how we treat our patients. We don't treat them by presumptively assuming they are <laughs> evil. Uh, or if somebody comes into my office with obesity, I don't I don't make him scream at the top of his lungs that he wants to confess at how bad his diet is. No. I, I treat him as an equal human being, and that's not how you get change as, as in the doctor-patient relationship. You know, the odd thing to me about it, too, is this never-ending feeding upon itself. Um, you know, if if this is the problem that they say it is, where we have so many, uh, too many doctors walking around, I guess all doctors, presumptively all doctors, walking around with this implicit bias, which is to say racism against their patients and, I suppose, co-workers as well, um, why, why 50 hours every two years, especially if you can't see it? Why, why? How do you know when you've accomplished your goal? How do you know when you've done your job? You've got to hand it to them. They, they, have, they have created a never-ending industry here. And, and they're going to create measures, by the way. They will, you know, you'll, you'll ask this question, and right now they don't have an answer, but they're going to create more false measures, like yes. half the measures they used to shut down every business during COVID and to do all the other authoritarian things they did um, in order to do power grabs. It's they will continuing a, an endless chain of power grabs because the presumption of the entire premise, and that's actually what was so good about her piece, and I couldn't believe it was in the Washington Post, I know. is that she said, before the civil rights movement, we, we fought against racism yeah. in order to, to achieve equality, right. and we, we started to get there, and yep. now it's been flipped around yep. in which we're back to where we were before the civil rights movement because now society is being divided again based on race. Yeah, that's judging, not what they yeah, wanted. It's exactly the opposite. I thought it was interesting, she said, too, in California, this African-American anesthesiologist, thought it was interesting how you go around speaking of, you know, uh, uh, solutions in search of problems. She said she had, in all her practice since 1974, only one incident of racism before her eyes that she ever saw or felt. That's a that's that's a pretty damn good record from an African American who started practicing medicine in 1974, don't you think? I mean, this really is. And she said, a by the way, it wasn't a problem. And it wasn't from her colleagues; no. it was from a patient. That's right, and it was from a patient. Exactly. Good reminder. Yeah. As long as we're on to COVID now uh, in California, let's talk about uh, some other things affecting the medical profession on this issue, and um, let's talk about what it. Well, we never hesitated on this show, but what it seems to be okay for NBC to talk about these days. Dr. Zudi Jasser and I will be right back.
I once uh, asked Dr. Zudi Jasser, Dr. Zudi Jasser, who his favorite American rock and rollers were, and he said Brian Adams. So we're giving him the song, but still not quite the right country. <laughs> Zudi, I will never forget that. That was so funny. <laughs> that was so funny. Um, but uh, Canada, Canada with its own problems. Um, California isn't much better. Uh, you are a physician. They have a law that will punish doctors who spread what they consider to be false information or misinformation, I guess, in the parlance of our age when it comes to talking about COVID. Boy, these people will not give it up, even as everything that, not everything, but most things we were saying that they consider misinformation in the law turned out to be vindicated. I I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Please don't ever go and try and practice in Arizona. They'll put you behind bars, brother. Oh, I know. And now we see the slow drip drip of of little reports here and there. (laughs) <laughs> Even that, uh, you know, the the left media is putting out to say, oh, wait, maybe natural immunity might be more effective. Oh, let's go to the next story. Yeah. Um, oh, maybe <laughs> yeah. I, I call them sort of COVID little epiphanies they're having yeah. that we that they think nobody's going to notice. And all they're doing is just putting a bookmark so that they can say, oh, yeah, we recognize what the science said. But in real time, it was a little different. The reality is, is I hope America is not only paying attention, but will continue to push the fact that uh, so many were wrong and, and cost trillions of dollars of damage and continued damage as we see our healthcare system now being overrun by backlog and, and uh, so many issues related to sort of the pandemics after the pandemics that you and I had talked about yep. that were, was going to come and after the pandemic, the first pandemic was done. And that's happening because of the disease trading that we did. And now they're saying, well, oh, maybe lockdowns didn't help. Maybe the countries in the states that had less of a lockdown actually might have fared better because their natural immunity went up quicker. Maybe natural immunity is better than vaccines in yeah. many ways. All these questions that are what naturally every day in a, a normal Western advanced medical practice we ask all the time. I mean, as I told you, when you and I were talking right at the knee deep of the early pandemic, I told you, I said, I don't know how they're coming across so confident on these things. We can't get physicians to make straight decisions most of the time because we're hemming and hawing about all the different opinions that exist out there. And yet physicians became economists. They became cultural authoritarians. They became public policy people. And Forget the public health stuff. It was like they were doing everything. I, let me. Uh, I, I didn't come into the segment with a proper introduction to you, but Dr. Jasser, J A S S E R, he is the director of the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care. If uh, uh, if if you're if you were if you were wondering who this this smart and sound and great voice is, Doctor, meaning you you know how much respect I have for you, so meaning no disrespect in this question. Uh, Dennis Prager says that throughout COVID, the one profession he lost the most respect for was medicine um, because of those that went along with that herd of independent minds that seemed to take all their marching out, all their marching orders from CNN, from the from the access of CNN and Fauciism. Uh, do you do you concur with his judgment, or is it a little is it a little too harsh? No, I, I do concur that uh, it, it's... Particularly um, the AMA. He's, he has nothing but dripping contempt for the AMA and how they went along with this stuff. Well, I'm, you know, I'll, let me set aside my comments and just say that for general, for, for medicine as a profession, I, I'm working within the AMA okay. to try to change many things Good. there. Okay, as, all right, as all right, urgent, if you will. Okay. <laughs> but right, I will yeah, tell let's, you... Let's, let's not have someone else you, lose a job here. Okay, all right. <laughs> I will tell you as as a physician that... 
you know, the politicization of medicine started even when Lancet put out the report on the Iraq war and said yes. a million had died. And right. all of a sudden I'm reading this thing. What, what is this doing in one of the leading medical journals in the world? And the left, as we talked about, always tries power grabs. Yeah. And they've been reaching into universities, reaching into academic medicine for, for some time. And COVID was sort of the, the huge wide opening that they used. And, you know, Having been trained in the Washington area and Bethesda Naval Hospital at near NIH, I had uh, uh, crossed paths with Fauci many times, and I can tell you that the culture in academic centers is to question authority. I got promoted to chief residence because I always questioned the, the senior residents and the attendings and, and knew my cases and was able to defend it, the Socratic method that we taught in. And yet that all went out the window during, you know, all of a sudden Fauci turned from a, a leading academician into a complete unadulterated politician yeah, yeah. and uh, um, who said that science was him. It wasn't actually what I thought he used to say at the NIH when we were students there. Science so needs it, to be it was a little sort more, of a bizarre transformation. Yeah, science, you would think science or medicine would be a little bit more humble about what they don't know. Let me take a quick break, quick, quick segment here, and we'll get into some of this a little more deeply on the other side of this break. And to be fair to Dr. Jasser, when I asked him who his favorite American rocker was, he might have been thinking North America and not just the country America, to be fair to him. Dr. Jasser from the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Dr. Zudi Jasser is our guest. He is the director at the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care, J-A-S-S-E-R. You were holding our hand through the early and roughest days of COVID and COVID mitigation, Zudi, explaining to our audience throughout 2020 and some of 2021 uh, what we should think about and what we should know. We kind of knew we were in the hands, or at least under the control of not only tyrants but idiots. I remember early on when we learned and knew quite quickly that the obese were going to uh, have particularly difficult and harsh, hard, hardest of times if they uh, attracted, obtained COVID. And so when the first thing they did was to shut down the gyms, I just remember you came in here with your head on fire and you were you were so against that sort of thing. But that, that almost told you everything you need to know about the political medical access or at least the epidemiological uh, political access when it came to COVID, so much nonsense that we had to live through. Right now, as you say, as you said so correctly, here in dribs and drabs, we're getting the vindications. Uh, three that I wanted to talk to you about, um, particularly your take on three of them, we were both just gobsmacked that NBC would print a headline last week, natural, uh, natural immunity better than a vaccine, or as if not as strong as better than a vaccine. Uh, a lot of us were, were just scratching our heads as to why it would otherwise be. Um, in no other instance could I think of would it otherwise be, except when it came to COVID. COVID really changed a lot of the rules, didn't it, Zudi? Oh, it did. And, you know, obviously the 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 entryway for the sort of flipping of conventional wisdom of, of a century of American medical science yeah. and Western medical science was that you had this virus that in some patients that we couldn't predict was quite aggressive. Right. So the ICUs were filling up and, you know, there was uh, definitely, and we weren't seeing as much flu and other things because this virus was sort of dominating the, the viral spectrum in America as it spread. 
But having said that, you still don't throw away all of the knowledge you have about the value of natural immunity, the value of the fact that patients and families should be able to make their own decisions about the risks they want to have if they keep their business open, if they if they decide to continue to interact or other things, and that coercion doesn't work. Actually, coercion creates more problems. And now we're starting to realize through studies that the reason natural immunity works better is probably because when you separate out people, it creates an artificial environment that doesn't that created other problems that we were dealing with that we were creating on top of one another in this artificial environment that we had never done in the past. Yeah, so it's, it's just sort of this bizarre thing. And, and, and actually, it all reminds me, there was a teacher last week that went viral in Arizona because she, she said that parents should not have the right to decide curriculum because she right. has a master's degree in yeah, education. I saw that. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, that, that was like a, a meme you know, across the country about parental rights yeah. being taken by folks with education degrees. Right. And I, as a doctor, every day try to learn from my patients sure. because, yeah, I might have a medical education and a medical degree, but patients often uh, teach us a lot. Yeah. You know, Osler said, the father of internal medicine said, 70% of, of diagnosis and treatment comes from learning the history of a patient, of what they tell you. So if that's true, we better listen to our yeah. patients and they can get armed with the information and they can decide what to do with it. And that's what autonomy is all about. It's not about us becoming the mother and father of patients and demanding and coercing them into doing what we think they should do for treatment. That's bizarre. That doesn't work. Thank you for that. And uh, I appreciate that. You you are so good on this. Talk to me about, there was this big study that was published in the aforementioned Lancet by the Cochrane Institute on the efficacy of masks, you were always skeptical of that too, right? Exactly, because we know, why was I skeptical of it? And that's why it sort of led to, um, you have to use the N95s, et cetera, because we know that for masks to work, the particle size, et cetera, matters. So, So to say that somehow having people wear surgical masks where you know, if you can smell things through them, obviously it's not really prohibiting viruses from going through. It just didn't make sense. Um, so it only makes sense when, if you were going to a football game where there's a hundred thousand people right in front of you, you know, that actually, I, I, as you and I have talked about before, that sort of made sense, but then you probably shouldn't be having massive events like that if that's what you're worried about. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the dogma became more of a, uh, you know, um, a virtue, virtue signal. signal, yeah, right. A virtue signal rather than actually a effective scientific imposition. And I can't tell you now how many patients are just so bitter about yeah. that because right. somebody. And, and remember, I kept telling you about the Islamic example, which yep. is, you know, covering people's faces takes away their identity. Yep. And ask the Iranian women, ask Saudi women. Right. So to say somehow that it's so weird that Americans were so difficult about wearing masks. It's it takes and we were putting them on our it's, kids. It's kids that have their character being formed at seven, eight years old. We're losing identity and having psychological problems because they were all of a sudden faceless 
in their classroom. That's right. It, t- it takes away your humanity and turns you into a walking billboard of fear and, uh, and, and, and panic, uh, which gets me to the third thing. You just touched on it, the mental illness, the afterwash, the, back, the downwash that we're going to now struggle with. Um, there is going to be a pandemic or at least an epidemic of mental illness with our youth. We're seeing that now, too, as we warned about whether it was the school closures, whether it was the instantiation of fear into our children, whether it was the using children to soothe adult anxieties for a disease that really, you know, without an underlying condition, really proved not to be that uh, that 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 uh, that dangerous to them, right, Sudi? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many signs, uh, Seth. Uh, the shortage of Adderall, the the narcotic use per tablet is higher than it's ever been wow. in the last few months in the United States, and it's not only because of the border and all of that, which is a huge impact, but because of prescription medications yeah. that are, are being done. The telehealth companies, you know, which many of us predicted were doing psychiatry uh, without examine, you know, through uh, telehealth and writing millions more prescriptions, they claim because they had to. Uh, uh, now are actually many of them are going out of business because the business model wasn't working. They were often patients being not evaluated fully or completely or appropriately. So that actually you'll see some of the, the billions of, of, of stock losses that are happening on Wall Street are some of the telehealth companies that are, are dying off. And, you know, sort of tells us that that sonic boom that happened where medicine was shifted from the bedside to telehealth. Yes, I still need telehealth in my practice, but it's about 10% of the practice. It shouldn't be 50, 80, or 100% of the practice and some of the practice models that now have created. And that created a boom in psychopathology. Uh, I can tell you as I used to say in 2018 that psychiatric care was one of the toughest things for me as a primary care doc to get my patients to be seen for. And now it's even 10 times worse than that. Yeah. It, it, the, the lack of availability of necessary services, especially for adolescents and, and youth who are especially vulnerable, uh, is, is just horrific right now. Well, Dr. Zudi Jasser, I am so glad to know you. Our audience is so glad to be able to hear you. Our community is so delighted you are a member of it. Uh, thank you for spending so much time with us, and thank you for everything you are and do. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Seth. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you all you do. You got it. Blessings to you. Dr. Zudi Jasser, director of the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. In his State of the Union speech, Joe Biden doubled down on his spending plans, adding even more to the federal deficit. That doesn't bode well for the value of your money. Joe Biden's disconnected view of the economy means there will be no meaningful steps taken to lessen inflation and lower interest rates. Your cash reserves and investments will be worth less, which is why I recommend calling the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group to look into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold with the only precious metals dealer, Seb Gorka, myself, thousands of you already know, Midas Gold Group. Gold traditionally holds its value when economies fail, guarding against the destruction of inflation and the ruin of a recession. Don't let Joe Biden's misguided economics wipe you out. Talk with the good folks at Midas Gold Group, MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com, or better yet, give them a call at 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000. You think about what I was talking about a little bit in my monologue and connect it to some of what I was talking about with Dr. Jasser, this notion of the crisis or a crisis in confidence or a crisis of confidence 
Think about how many institutions did foul their own nest. The kinds of institutions we normally would look to and trust, whether it was uh, in the teaching profession from the direction the unions were pushing them in, or whether it was the medical profession and the direction that the professional organizations were pushing them in. I mentioned both the unions and the professional organizations because, of course, we all know that there were those brave ones and excellent ones that kicked and bucked that trend, kicked and bucked their professional organizations and unions, and God bless them. And doesn't it kind of prove itself interesting that those that stepped out of the dictates of their professional organizations, whatever the institution or their unions, whatever the profession, isn't it kind of interesting? They tend to be practitioners of excellence. They tended to be really good doctors. They tended to be really good teachers. And you can do this throughout all of these industries. They tended to be really good ones. There's something about America that always kind of rewarded that person, wasn't it? Wasn't wasn't America the country, wasn't the notion in the West that we were going to reward and honor the heroes? Weren't we going to honor and and uh, and, and 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 give accolades to those who weren't part of the herd, weren't part of the herd of independent minds? And isn't it interesting that we always noted that when we did, we always found someone of excellence. Always did. Mediocrity. Mediocrity mediocrity and incompetence is a huge problem, but so is the over-politicalization and tyranny of our professions. All right, we've got uh, George Kaloff coming right up. Don't go away. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 